You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Driving Law with Kyla Lee and Paul Doroshenko. Hi, Paul. Hi. Uh, so today, I thought there's been nothing good or bad driving-related in the news, which is kind of sad. It's August, though, and there's so rarely, you know, interesting news stories in August. At the beginning of August, there was so much happening. Maybe it's just a relative thing for us. I don't know. Maybe. Um, but... It did give me some time to reflect on some of the things that I deal with regularly, that you deal with regularly, questions we get from clients and from other lawyers, and what information we could use this podcast to convey to people that they might need to know. There are questions that are asked of us regularly, and uh, lawyers ask us, but clients phone us quite literally probably ten times a week and ask us certain questions. Basically, they're trying to think out, think around some way of dealing with some legal problem, and usually it's something that has been dealt with uh, and has kind of already closed off, but you know, we're always looking for creative ideas. We listen to people, and then we explain to them you know, what their position is. But I think this is an opportunity for us to uh, sort of cover these things off for anybody who's interested. Yeah, and I think the biggest one that we get a lot of calls about is people who have driving prohibitions for points. So they've gotten too many tickets, they've been issued a driving prohibition, and as a result of that driving prohibition, have gone and taken the do-it-yourself method of writing into the superintendent of motor vehicles asking that the prohibition be revoked or reduced. Yeah, it's the, the, the superintendent calls it the driver improvement program. So what happens is if you have a ticket that's recorded on your license and, um, you know, it's accumulation of tickets unless you're a new driver, but the superintendent reviews your driving record and comes to the conclusion that it's unsatisfactory, then they send you a notice of intent to prohibit. Uh, and it's a letter from the superintendent, which is at the top notice of intent to prohibit, and then it gives you 21 days from the date of the letter to write in. You'll have to pay $100 and explain to the superintendent why the prohibition should be reduced or revoked. Um, and, you know, most people who get it um, probably do write in, I think. Do you think? I think so. Yeah. I'm trying to remember. I I will admit that I got one of these many, many, many moons ago when I was a teenager, and I got two speeding tickets with my N, which many of our listeners will feel a special kinship with that experience. Um, and I don't think I wrote in, but I also think my parents grounded me and told me I wasn't allowed to write in and that I was in a lot of trouble. Well, it was very foolish of your parents. You probably should have written in because if it's a three-month one and you get it down to one month uh, this time, uh, then next time around, you know, it might be a four-month one uh, instead of a six-month one. So I, generally, I think it's probably a good idea to write in, but let's back up and talk about some of the misconceptions about it. So first of all, First misconception is that it, you have 21 days to write in from the date you received the letter. Nope. That is not 
accurate. You have 21 days from the date of the letter. And I can tell you, uh, a few years back, I wrote a blog post complaining about the fact that the letters did not appear to be dated on the date that they were sent out. In fact, some days it looked like about five days had had, uh, expired before they had been mailed. And this was a fairly common thing that we would see. People would be calling me, I just came today, and I've only got, you know, 14 days to write in. Um, I wrote that blog post, and it seems to have improved slightly. It appears that they're being mailed within at least a day of them being printed. But again, 21 days from the date of the letter. So when people call in, the very first thing I ask them, and it's, 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 I suppose it's probably dry and... Um, not very friendly the way I ask anymore, but the what's first the thing I ask, what's the date on the letter? <laughs> well, I just got it today, and I just know what's the date on the letter. Yeah, well, I just got back from a trip, and I... So, you have 21 days to write in from the date of the letter. If you don't write in within those 21 days, what happens? You get a driving prohibition. The superintendent basically has a big clock in their office, and as soon as your 21-day countdown ends, their computer automatically triggers a notice of prohibition to be sent to you. So it gets, uh, I guess, put in the queue, printed, signed, dropped in the mail, and sent off to you. And this is where I think we get the most amount of inquiries. What what can be done once you get to that notice of prohibition stage? So we get a lot of them at this time of the year, and there is a legitimate issue there. People do go on vacation, and they come back, and this thing is in the mailbox. You know, they have a conviction um, from springtime when the weather first turned, and they get a speeding ticket, and the police were out doing cell phone enforcement, and uh, that ticket is registered on their license. The notice of intent to prohibit goes out. You're away on vacation. You don't write in. The next thing you know, you come back, you've, you know, you've missed the 21 days, and then you get this letter, notice of prohibition. So there's basically, like, three options. And one option, sort of probably the most likely option to make something happen quickly is to appeal the driving prohibition to BC Supreme Court. You've got 30 days from the date of the notice of driving prohibition, to appeal it in BC Supreme Court. But there's all sorts of disadvantages to that approach. Um, partly because, although it's a, an appeal, and it's set out in the Motor Vehicle Act as an appeal, not a judicial review, the matter effectively proceeds as a judicial review. Is there a filing fee with that, like there is with a judicial review? Yes, yeah, $200. you got to pay $200 for the court. And you, you file uh, an application where, or an appeal, notice of appeal where directions are required. And you have to set down an application hearing in front of a judge for directions about how the appeal is to proceed. So the first, like, for somebody who's self-represented trying to do this, first of all, you have to find the right form, which is difficult enough to do. And then you have to figure out what the heck is an application for directions and what do I do? And, it's a horrible process that is way more clunky than it has to be. I guess I'm I'm wondering. I, you're saying that this is the first and the fastest thing, and I don't ever I, I I shut down the conversation usually fairly quickly when people call me about it because to me it doesn't make any sense to do it this way. But what 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 are the grounds for? Like, what is the grounds for appeal in that case? Well, Basically, you missed your time period to write in? I mean, No, 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 because it proceeds as a judicial review. 
So even though it's an appeal, what the court looks at is whether or not it was reasonable for the superintendent of motor vehicles to prohibit you on the basis of your driving record. And that's without your submission. Without your submission. But there's all sorts of case law in the issue that says that your submissions about your personal circumstances and why you need your license and that your family will starve and you'll lose your house and you'll lose your job are irrelevant to the superintendent's consideration because it's not a statutory consideration. So the leniency that they afford in the notice of intent sort of mechanism where you write in about your submission or about your situation is not leniency that the court can consider on an appeal. So they look instead at the reasoning process employed by the superintendent. Did they consider the facts? Did they apply the law correctly? I know, but I hear you. But my question is, and you're answering my question, but my point is and what I want to know is, is there ever any grounds for appeal because they've got a broad discretion? Yes. There are cases where they've been successful. I mean, the one we talked about a couple weeks ago, the woman who had the multiple cell phone tickets. But she wrote in and they considered her matter. Yes. So how do you do it when you've just missed the 21 days, you haven't written in, you know, on time? Okay, yes. So this is what happens with the application for direction. The court says, well, you haven't engaged the superintendent's jurisdiction. So they say the driving prohibition or you get an order to say the driving prohibition. You have to apply for it. Demonstrate to the court that you suffer irreparable harm. Then engage the superintendent's jurisdiction by writing your submissions to them. They then respond to your submissions about whether they are still going to proceed with the prohibition. And then you continue your appeal or not. So that basically opens it up if you can do it. It opens it up for you to write in. Is that what you're saying? Yes. All right. But you've gone through. How long does that take? I mean, your application for direction can be done within eight days of the date of service of your notice of appeal pursuant to the court of appeal rule. It would, in practical respects, take longer than that because you'd also want to put together your application for a stay instead of your irreparable harm in an affidavit. So it would be, you know, a couple weeks. Ah, okay. All right. So that is an option. It is an option. It's just a very, very expensive option. And all you're accomplishing, it's taking you a month basically to do it probably. And then after that, you're still back in the queue with the superintendent of motor vehicles. Yes. So if you're a realtor, that's something you could do, I suppose. You could, yes. And it's not cheap if you were to hire a lawyer to do it because of the multiple steps that are required. And it's not cheap to do it yourself because of the multiple applications that are required. Just the filing fees alone are $280. Okay. So this is one of those circumstances where basically you could hire a driver for two months for the same amount or maybe longer. Maybe longer. Okay. But then what's option two? Option two is write to the superintendent, acknowledge the prohibition, say, okay, I accept that I'm prohibited from driving, and then write and ask them to reduce it. And that's been the classic way of doing it, that they didn't really seem to even acknowledge a few years ago, and then they started doing it. Yeah. And we've been doing that a lot. I mean, we've written dozens of those letters. You still have to pay the $100. You still have to pay the $100 or repay the $100 if you already wrote in the first time around, so now you're at $200. Well, the second time around, it becomes less likely unless you can show some change in circumstances, I think, if 
you've written and didn't. Yeah, or if you wrote yourself and you were like, I got these tickets because the officer was mean to me and you didn't bother to outline your circumstances. Yeah, or, or deal with any of the other aspects that they want. Yeah. No, but the problem is that I guess this has become such a popular method or staffing is so chronically under manned at Road Safety DC's office that the backlog on these submissions for people who are already serving their prohibitions from driving, right now, um, I've been checking on the status of one of my files, they're considering applications that were submitted in the last week of May, and we're headed into the last week of August, so three months behind, which for most people is the full prohibition. I hate to say it, but this is something that falls to the uh, to the NDP here, uh, because under the Liberals, they were trying, they were aiming for a 21-day turnaround, and they weren't always doing it in 21 days, but they were doing it like typically in a month. So if your client had a four-month driving prohibition, and uh, they came to you two weeks into that driving prohibition and said, "Look, this is what I'm going through. Uh, can we write in?" You know, they they would get it considered, and you might get it down to two months. Uh, but now, uh, and they might even get it down to a month. They might remit the thing, and I, we did succeed with that regularly uh, in circumstances where there was, you know, a meritorious case and, and, a, and a good argument and a good purpose to it. Now the problem is that you may have that good argument and that good case, uh, but they're just not—they're not getting around to it. They just don't have an adjudicator, apparently. Yeah. So if you write in, expect to serve your whole driving prohibition unless you're facing a really long one, in which case expect to serve a good chunk of it. Yeah. Well, it starts to, um, you know, right now we're seeing so many people get four-month driving prohibitions from uh, yeah, from uh, using an electronic device or an excessive speed and something else or an electronic device and something else within a two-year period. And uh, those people who come back from vacation and have that, Prohibition. I mean, they, they're probably going to serve the four months or most of the four months unless the uh, the solicitor general starts putting some more money back into adjudication. Or maybe the adjudicators are all on vacation. Maybe they're going to be back. <laughs> They've been on vacation for months and months. Yeah. Well, maybe they. It's been you know summertime in BC. They wanted to leave the smoke. No, because this has been like I, this has been on. No, I know it's been since May. It started in May that we noticed. No, this. it started before this. I was having people call me in January from one set. Okay. The three month backlog has been consistent for quite some time now. Because I didn't notice it until uh, until um, sometime in June, I guess. Because I wrote for somebody in May, and I hadn't got a response, and I hadn't got a response, so I phoned. That's when I found out about the backlog. Yeah. Um, which leaves the third option, and probably the worst option, but the one that I think most people are inclined to do, and that's do nothing and continue driving. Well, do nothing and continue driving, and there's two different ways of that. Like, pretend that you never got the letter, um, which, again, is something you don't want to do, uh, or, um, or uh, you know, get served the letter, serve the driving prohibition, and nevertheless serve the driving prohibition while you're serving the driving prohibition, drive while you're prohibited from driving. And and, and, and don't do it. <laughs> yeah, don't, don't, don't ignore the driving prohibition. In fact, there's case law on this. There's a, a driving while prohibited case in which a guy got the letter in the mail and he knew because he'd written in on his notice of intent and they sent him back saying, 
we're rejecting this and you're going to get a driving permission under a separate cover. He gets the letter in the mail and he goes, well, if I don't open it, I don't know what's in here. Throws it in the trunk of his car and he gets pulled over while he's driving and the police arrest him for driving while prohibited saying, you got this letter. We have some evidence. They have some some Canada Post evidence to show that he'd received it. And um, they charged him with driving while prohibited. And he argued at court, I never opened the letter, so I had no idea that I was prohibited. And the judge says, no, 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 you were willfully blind. You didn't open the letter on purpose because you didn't want to be prohibited from driving. And this is the, the desperate thing. I mean, this is, uh, that's a stupid thing. Um, and driving while prohibited is uh, something that I think is, frankly, stupid thing to do because it's an easy thing for them to prove and you are prohibited from driving you have to abide by the law that's you know we all have to abide by the law uh but you can see the desperation for people particularly people who drive for a living you know you get the truck driver who um the long-haul truck driver who's away misses his notice of intent period he's got a uh, two cell phone tickets in a year and um or in two years and he gets a four-month driving prohibition and he's got a uh loan to pay for his rig and contracts, and you, you, you know, you can see why the desperation would set in, and people, uh, you know, do things like pretend the letter didn't come or or drive while prohibited under those circumstances. But uh, I, I think, I mean, I'm gonna, we're, we're just talking basically about facts here, but I'm going to, I'm going to uh, say, in my opinion, that this failure to uh, adjudicate these matters promptly is creating, I would suspect, more driving while prohibited cases. And we defend yeah. a lot of drive while prohibited cases, but it, 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 when there's no other option for people. Yeah, you have a, you have a clunky appeal process in BC Supreme Court that usually doesn't lead to success. You have, uh, the option of writing into the superintendent being unattractive because you're going to end up serving the whole of the driving prohibition anyway before you get a response. And you don't even really then have a, you know, uh, good idea of what your likelihood of success is going to be. Um, so for a lot of people, they feel like this is really their best option. Take the risk, continue driving, and hope no one can prove they got the letter. The problem with that, of course, uh, is that you don't get any credit for it. So say you throw the letter in your trunk like this guy did. Maybe you throw it in the shredder and pretend it didn't come. Uh, and you think, okay, well, it's a four-month driving prohibition. Four months from now, I'll go into ICBC. I'll keep driving, pretend I don't get the letter. So long as I don't get pulled over, four months from now, I'll go into ICBC and say, hi, yeah, I haven't been driving for four months. I'd like my license now. Mm-hmm. doesn't work that way. No, and it's also very foolish, and a lot of people do this, to continue driving for a few weeks or a few months, hoping that they're not going to get pulled over and served the prohibition roadside, much less charged with driving while prohibited, and then they backdate the notice. So ICBC will count the date that your driving prohibition starts from the date of your signature, acknowledging it. So they'll get it May 1st, and they'll drive for all of May, and on June 1st, they'll sign the notice, and they'll put May 1st next to their signature, thinking, ha, ha, ha. I've gamed the system. You only game the system in those circumstances if nobody can prove that you drove in the month that you backdated it for. And I have had more than one client who thought they were being very clever and ended up getting a summons 
for driving while prohibited because there was some evidence from like a red light camera or from uh, getting pulled over and be- being issued a ticket that the police found out about. And then when they saw the prohibition in effect on that date, went back and charged them with travel permit. How it's been explained to me um, by the people in the office that deal with the adjudication, uh, who actually deal with the input when the when the letters arrive. Uh, if it's, um, you know, say you, you date the letter May 1st and the postal date on it is May 5th, then they're going to go by the post postal date and they look at the postal date on the envelope. If the thing... Uh, arrives in their uh, in their mailbox May third, and it's dated May first, and um, you know, you, and maybe it's a day off. They're probably going to accept it. But if it's a if it's like more than a week, uh, guaranteed, you can't backdate it because they'll just go by the postal date. So uh, your best bet is to just be honest and sign the thing the day that you date it, mail it in along with your driver's license, and don't bloody drive. Yeah. Now, the other risk that you run, of course, if you drive during the, the the period after receiving the notice, is that you can be pulled over and then served at the driving prohibition roadside. So a police officer can stop your vehicle, um, determine that you're due to be served a prohibition that hasn't been acknowledged, and then they give it to you right then and there at the roadside, and then you're stuck. You don't have a way home. You can't drive your car. Um, sometimes they can give you a temporary license, but lots won't. Well, there's lots of circumstances where they're not supposed to, um, and uh, many of them don't know how that works, so they don't bother in any event. So a lot of the times they'll just tow your vehicle, um, and that's it. And they will either serve you the driving prohibition, or they'll they'll give you a, an appearance notice for driving while prohibited. And, uh, you know, the crown may look at it and, and not approve the drive while prohibited in those circumstances. But in any event, the uh, you've already gone through the nightmare of your car being towed and, and uh, losing your wheels right there. Yeah, and it doesn't give you any time to plan or make arrangements. You're stuck with, you know, your your pants down around your ankles, and you were probably on your way to somewhere important. Yeah, maybe to pick up your children from school or something, and there goes the minivan. Or, or, or you know, to meet your friends for coffee. Yeah, <laughs> yeah whatever. Is, you know, some of, the, I think some of the explanations we get for why people are driving well prohibited never cease to amaze me. It, it seemed, the most common one seems to be, I had to be to work, I was going to be late, and I couldn't oh, sure. figure out some other way. I get that. And that's understandable. You're like, yeah, okay, you felt pressure. You didn't want to lose your job. You had to get there. But like, you also get people like, oh, my friend called me and asked me for a ride. Or people who are driving a licensed driver. Like, why... Why did that person not drive? Yeah, I know. So that's one that just always shocks me, surprises me. Yeah, well, my friend had his license, but uh, he didn't want. I didn't. She didn't want to drive. She was feeling sick. She didn't want to drive. Yeah. Don't don't <sighs> don't put yourself in that position, because I think this is another thing we haven't talked about, and it's how easy it is for the police to catch prohibited drivers. I tell some clients this because some police officers have told me this. Um, there's, there's a prohibited driving squad. There's, like, officers who do that. But uh, if you ever watch the TV show Hill Street Blues, at the beginning of many of the episodes, they'd have, like, a briefing. Uh, or at some point, they'd have a briefing at the beginning of the shift. And I've had officers tell me, yeah, they had a briefing at the beginning of the shift. They were told that so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so are now prohibited. And, uh, and they even have photos to pass around. This is where the guy works. 
this is where he lives, this is other cars that, you know, so-and-so saw him driving one day, and somebody else saw him in the Safeway, uh, you know, driving this, and it just it surprises me how uh, they can do that. But not just that, they have uh, automatic license plate recognition systems. And on that note, I think we need to take a break because the smoke is really hurting my throat, and let's continue okay. this afterwards. we'll be back in a moment. Okay, have you sufficiently recovered from your smoke inhalation? If you're not in BC, um, you don't know uh, what we've experienced here. And of course, we probably had it not nearly as bad in the Lower Mainland as we had in other places, but you and I had been to Vernon and... Um, Terrace. Terrace ter- was clear. Terrace was fine, but we were in Vernon and Kamloops, and I was in Edmonton the other day. Mm-hmm. And in all of those places, there was quite a bit of smoke, but um, nothing was as bad as when we were in Vernon, but... Um, you know, it was the apocalypse. I was in court in Port Coquitlam today, and the sheriff's office is in a newly constructed part of the courthouse in the center of it, and it's got its own air conditioning system. And the air conditioning system appeared to just be pumping in smoky air from the outside. It was like smoking a cigarette there going into the sheriff's office. In any event, I have recovered. I had something to drink. I'm feeling a little bit better. I still have a smoke headache, but we wanted to talk about automatic license plate recognition systems. Yes. Um, Automatic license plate recognition systems are really interesting because they scan the license plates um, and they basically just take a photo and then using photo recognition make out the letters and scan the license plate and a hit will be generated. But the hit is only generated on data that's downloaded into the ALPR system at the beginning of every shift. So the um, there's a little bit, little bit of a history here that's important to know in BC. Um, when this came out, the um, Jamie Graham, who was the former police chief in Vancouver, who got himself into some trouble when he uh, misplaced his handgun or left his handgun under the seat of his car <laughs> seat. at the same time that he was also giving a news conference about a lost shotgun. Um, <laughs> They found his handgun while they were looking for the lost shotgun. They found his handgun under the seat of his car. Ultimately, I'm surprised that he recovered from that and other things. Um, He became the police chief in Victoria. And he phoned me once uh, when I had made a freedom of information request. And uh, uh, he was just trying to uh, obfuscate the request. But at the time he phoned me, I really didn't care anymore about the information. But one of the things that they were doing in Victoria when he was the police chief is that they were using the automatic license plate recognition system to gather data about where vehicles were seen and keeping track of that data with the intention of using it. So it was basically being used as surveillance of the general public. And this came out and hit the news and the privacy commissioner said, that's a no-no. And now we have a policy I don't know how well it's followed, but you learned all about the policy in a trial you had. I did, yes. So basically now the policy is if a plate is scanned and no hit is generated, nothing about the plate is stored in the ALPR system, only the GPS coordinates of where a scan took place so that they could track where the officers are using the equipment and where data is being generated, but they can't track who is where. You're making a face. Do they keep that information? Do they just know the GPS where coordinates. my vehicle is? Not your vehicle. They just know at the intersection of, of Broadway and Granville, um, there was a hit on the ALPR that returned no results. 
but it doesn't say it's my license plate. No, the only time it'll store the data related to a license plate is if it gets a hit. So if you have a driving while prohibited trial, you could theoretically request the ALPR data related to that hit, and it would show the license plate and that information. So getting back to driving while prohibited cases. Which is why I said... Yeah, no, I know. I know. I'm getting back to the point that we had before the break, which was we were talking about the myriad of ways that the police track down people who are driving while prohibited. Yeah. And obviously the automatic license plate recognition system works. But I once had a client who was pulled over driving a vehicle that was registered to somebody else in their household. And the police, for whatever reasons, were able to uh, determine that he was likely a prohibited driver and he was driving somebody else's car that he was not driving when he was originally served any other document. Yep. They can really find out a, a creepy amount of information about you and where you're likely to be. And also there are many officers, like you mentioned, there's a driving while prohibited squad. There are also many officers who really just love enforcing driving while prohibited. And I can think of a particular officer who I won't name in Chilliwack, who, when he knows somebody is subject to a driving prohibition, will park outside their house and just wait. In an unmarked car, I assume. Nope. In a marked car to see if they drive. People are dumb enough to drive right in front of him. Um, but I, I actually, I had a client um, in my office today who'd been served a prohibition by this particular officer. And I said, has he ever parked in front of your house? And he's like, yeah. I'm like, yeah, he does that. Yeah. I had no idea. Mm-hmm. That's, I, I, I mean, I, I knew they did it, but I didn't know that they would do it in a marked cruiser. I know they park outside of people's homes. Sometimes on the route they drive to work. Yep. There was one guy I had a long time ago, and I was talking to the officer after the trial, and the officer told me, and it didn't come out in the trial, but the officer told me, yeah, I was pretty sure I knew where he went to work, and I thought he had this Ford Taurus as a work car or something like this. And I know he hadn't been seen in it, but then I saw him tooling down the road in it. So I pulled him over. And I've had a few, and maybe I mentioned this before the break, more than once I've had police officers see somebody driving when the police officer was driving their private vehicle or were in a grocery store or were in the mall and then saw the person, you know, followed them, decided, yeah, okay, I know I'm not working right now, but... I'll just go out and see if they get into their car and drive away. And sure enough, and sometimes the police have come back and charged the people under those circumstances. But other times they've just decided, okay, well, we know, you know, so-and-so is driving. So let's get out there and make sure we get them. Yeah, exactly. But the ALPR also raises other interesting privacy concerns, I think. And they were ones that I argued recently in a trial, arguing that, in certain circumstances, the use of the ALPR and a search of CPIC information to determine if someone is prohibited could be an unreasonable search and seizure. Yes. Okay. I, I know what you're saying. You're I, making I another it. face. No, no. We discussed this before. I know what well, happened in the case. So, yeah. I mean, it's, I, I think it was an interesting argument. I think it was it was worth running. Um, you weren't successful. But it no. was a... No, but there were, I think, two lawyers in the country who'd argued it, myself and Alan Gold, and he edits the criminal code. So, I mean. Yeah, well, he edits his criminal code, but the, um, and it's finally edited. Uh, your, 
I, I thought your argument was went, went a little bit further than his. I thought you maybe had a little bit greater chance of success because you had more information that you got out of the officer during the course <laughs> of the evidence in the trial. And bearing in mind that I think you ran yours in Victoria, where Jamie Graham and the Victoria police were using that data in a really uh, Orwellian um, <laughs> evidence collection scheme on the population of the people who were visiting or in Victoria, I thought maybe you had a better chance at it. But again, it's one of those things that I think the uh, comes out and sort of being minimally intrusive in the end if they're not keeping that data. Yeah. And so what had happened in that case was um, the officer did, didn't get a hit on the ALPR. So my client's vehicle drove by, nothing came up on the ALPR. And so the officer then decided to run the plate in CPIC of his own accord and determine based on the, the results on CPIC whether or not my client was a prohibited driver. And the argument that I was making was essentially if the vehicle is equipped with ALPR and the ALPR has all of the information downloaded into it about who's prohibited and who has warrants and all these other things that it looks for, it's not reasonable to then go and search vehicle plates and ICBC database information in another source if you're already told by your computer in your car, this person's fine. So you felt it was an unreasonable search as a result of the fact that the police officer took one step further when he saw a vehicle that his first indication was that it was fine and then he went to some other database. Yes, you sound as skeptical as the judge did. No, I mean I I I see your argument, but I don't think that. I, I mean I I I guess I'm I'm suspicious about what the police officer look, it's, was it's, actually doing. Yeah. Um, and I, and <laughs> uh, I, so I don't I, I don't quite buy their I story. Go, I won't go into the facts of the case to oh. say what he was doing leading up to that, although I had a good laugh about them. Um, the uh, but I, it's no different to my mind than an officer, you know, dealing with a driver at a roadblock and not getting any indication there that they're impaired by alcohol, no odor of liquor, no admission of consumption, letting them continue to drive, and then two blocks later, stopping them for a sobriety check. You have no basis to be conducting a sobriety check at that point. By all indications that you have, there's nothing going on here. And so you, um, and so you don't have this, uh, this this basis even to conduct this random search that you're permitted to do. And there has to be. The police powers to search these databases okay. has to be curtailed by something. Okay. It can't okay. be absolute. Okay. okay, okay. But you know, you know what the difference is there. What's the difference? A detention. But the search of my client's license plate information resulted in a detention. Resulted in a detention. Resulted yeah. in a detention. So that's different from detaining somebody arbitrarily but, down the road. But think just, about what other information you can get about a person with a CPIC search. Well, there's lots of things, but that's not the point. The point here is that mm -hmm. your your analogy is a person being detained, cleared, and then detained again on not even a suspicion or a hunch. Uh, and th that is different from a police officer not detaining somebody, running something through one computer and thinking... I'm just going to run it through another computer while I'm here. You know, the, the, the guy's driving a little strange. Let's see if I can find out some more information. But he wasn't driving strange. Well, whatever. I mean, uh, let's see if I can get some more information. You know, I, I, I don't I don't see the 
infringement beyond the fact that I don't like the police looking up anybody in the computer. And I, I don't, you know, I hate that, but it's a car and you're on the road and you got a license plate. So I think it's, it's a reasonable thing. What I think though, I, there's a separate issue. I think if you had something like this 25 years ago, I think you would have been much more likely to have succeeded in court with that point than you are right now. No, and I think we it's were because talking of about the, this earlier today. Yeah. I think it's the, uh, and, and the people we were discussing it with were saying that it was a result of millennials just being accepting of these things. I don't think, and maybe that is, I mean, that may be, but I, I think but My it's judge not, wasn't a millennial. No, but I think people just generally are. I think people are just generally more accepting of being governed by, um, you know, electronic means. But like, I think you, you look at this Mario Canseco's recent uh, poll, um, and I know that there's lots of people who are are questioning it, but saying that there's some sort of support for this uh, speed radar at um, at intersections. I think that support will fall away when those tickets start coming to people. But, um, you know, it seems that, that people are willing to be governed by robots in this way uh, and don't mind this, you know, technology, I suppose, until they get caught um, tracking them. And we've become so used to being tracked by cameras and we go to ICBC now and ICBC has facial recognition and twins go in and one guy goes in to fake the, to, to get a license for his brother who's, you know, unavailable for some reason. And the next thing you know, he's charged. Uh, you know, this is, uh, you know, it seems that we're just becoming more accepting of this. And I think the, the sense of being, um, you know, having computers monitoring where we are and keeping track of where we are, uh, on the basis of, uh, the license plate, I think, would have been seen as an Orwellian infringement of our privacy had this happened in the 1980s. Well, I always like to think I'm ahead of my time, but maybe I'm behind my time on this one then. Maybe you're just conservative. Don't, I, I, I don't even know how to respond to that. I don't want to be lumped in there with, with conspiracy theorists. And... I actually think, I, th I think the millennials are quite conservative. They're quite just accepting of authority and maybe that comes from uh you know daycares and and um helicopter uh, parents helicopter parents and uh everybody holding hands and and there's no such thing as a bad question and uh that attitude but okay but going back to alpr and infringements and charter violations the other layer that was in this trial that is somewhat interesting was the fact that the officer had said in one report that he'd that there was no hit and then sort of when probed about that said no what i meant by there was no hit was that it didn't register anything at all it never picked up the plate and so i asked for and the crown refused to give me the gps data but i think you know you expressed concern about the robot storing the gps location of where a hit took place but that's one circumstance in which it could be, you know, reasonable to keep that information, to know whether uh, an officer is telling the truth when he says nothing came up versus something did come up and it indicated everything was fine. Yeah, that might be useful evidence to have to cross-examine. Yeah, I mean, the more information we get when we're cross-examining, usually the more we find that something's been fabricated or, you know, police have made up aspects of it just to fill or, in the story because they're or lazy. Misremembered. Or misremembered. Or misremembered. But often 
I mean, I, I think often police are, in, in, there's lots of cases where I found police are withholding information that would be damaging to them. And we get it for some reason or another. And the courts are always, you know, very rarely see those cases because they don't end up in front of judges mm-hmm. that often um, because usually prosecutors throw them out. And when it happens to us in traffic court, often it just ends up with, you know, something that is satisfactory to my client. Uh, and it, again, it doesn't end up in front of the court, which is interesting. That's a whole interesting thing, but an interesting discussion about disclosure because, you know, the courts don't see uh, what much of what takes place. And I think we've got a big problem with police disclosing information, the failure of them to disclose accurate information and the full story. But- yeah, I mean, in one of these these weeks, I'd like to talk about sort of the de-skilling of police officers as a result of moving driving cases out of the courts. Um, I ran into an officer in traffic court this week, a senior officer in the Vancouver Police Department traffic section, um, you know, who was talking about how he'd love never to have to testify again. And the less time he can spend testifying, the better. And I said, but don't you think it's a good way to train yourself to deal with testifying for more serious cases? And he looked at me and he said, well, Kyla, I mean, I've been doing this 30 years. I'm not doing any serious cases. I do traffic and and I know how to testify. And I said, yeah, but think about the younger officers, new recruits. And he said, oh, no. I'm with you there. This is the best training ground. So I think that we could have an interesting discussion about that one week. So spoiler alert, that's coming up. Well, I was talking to a police officer uh, when I was in traffic court um, just recently, and he had a file there that he had issued an IRP on. And I was discussing that file with him. And, um, you know, he had all of this other material. Uh, lots of it, a disc and all sorts of other things that none of it was, of course, provided to the superintendent's office. Mm-hmm. And the person who was had their IRP never did get any of that disclosure. And, you know, it sort of leads the police to think that, oh, I'd only have to provide this disclosure in this case. Oh, I don't have to provide this disclosure in this case. Oh, I've got it. All I've got to do is give that report. And, you know, you've got a police officer with 10 pages of notes and they feel no obligation to disclose it. And so that's what they're taught. And that's sort of what they're trained. And that's what they're coming away with. Uh, again, back to sort of the de-skilling of police officers. It's also thinking that they have different responsibilities. I don't have to give full disclosure to the superintendent of motor vehicles. Because you know what? It's an IRP. I only have to tell them what I want to tell them. And that's pretty upsetting. Especially upsetting when, as if you recall... The superintendent tried to argue in a judicial review one time that I had to give full disclosure of every document in all of my files for all of my clients to the superintendent in any hearing. Yeah. Anyway, we could talk about that one day. Anyway, lots of things we could talk about, but I... I think we've covered our our sort of driving while prohibited and notice of prohibition sort of informative piece. Yeah, this was, uh, again, this was sort of um, education for the public here rather than a discussion about developments in the law because basically... The law didn't develop this week. (laughs) Well, I mean, these are all issues that the superintendent of motor vehicles has dealt with, that the law has dealt with, that have been covered off. Everybody has thought about every angle to mm-hmm. try and uh, get away with driving when the government says you're not supposed to be driving anymore. 
And the government has thought about every angle and it's a complex system. It seems needlessly complex. It's obviously evolved. You can see how it evolved to get where it is. Uh, you know, evolution doesn't necessarily lead to perfection. And uh, we have a very complex system, but if you try and, and uh, game the system, it, it won't work. There are methods of dealing with it and they're unsatisfactory. But if you try and game the system, it's not gonna, you're not going to succeed. And, you know, really at the end of the day, you're going to have a better chance at navigating those efforts and, and identifying which one is best for you and your situation. If you speak with somebody who is a legal professional who knows about driving, it doesn't have to be us. You don't have to call us just because you listen to this podcast, although we'd like you to, um, but you don't have to. Um, but you should talk to somebody. Please don't try and do it yourself because it it is complex. It seems simple. You get the paperwork. The instructions seem simple, but it's not. And the consequences for you can be really significant. And if you get a drive while prohibited charge, don't just assume, well, I was prohibited and I drove. You know, it's it's still up to the Crown to prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt. Uh, the onus is on them. There are shortcuts that they have available, but they don't always work. Uh, and there are procedural protections that are available to you in the prosecution of these cases. So don't assume just because you got caught driving while prohibited that your ship is sunk. Um, you know, in a lot of cases, they can prove it if they really want to uh, put all the effort in and all the, you know, bring down the full uh, weight of the government on you. You're facing a jail term if you get a second one of these. So, and a minimum one year driving prohibition if you're convicted on, even on a first offense. So don't, you know, take it lightly. If you get a drive while prohibited charge, call a lawyer, find somebody who does it. It's not a criminal charge. It's a Motor Vehicle Act charge. A lot of people seem to be uh, under a misunderstanding with that. But if it's uh, if it's a driving prohibition um, and uh, you get a drive while prohibited charge, it's a Motor Vehicle Act charge dealt with in provincial court, give us a call. Yep. And you can reach us at 604-685-8889 or online at vancouvercriminallaw.com. Thanks for tuning in to a less exciting episode of Driving Law, but more educational than most episode of Driving Law. And tune in next week. Oh my week. God, education is less exciting. Than... Well, <laughs> yeah. Education versus enforcement, Paul. We're, we're educating today rather than talking about cool enforcement things. Okay. So um, give us a call if you have questions about this or if you... Um, Got in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> All right. And tune in next week.